Chapter Seven of the Agony Column. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peak. The Agony Column by Earl Durr Biggers. Chapter Seven. In the course of the morning, she made several mysterious inquiries of her parent regarding nice points of international law as it concerned murder, and it is probable that he would have been struck by the odd nature of these questions had he not been unduly excited about another matter. "'I tell you, we've got to get home,' he announced gloomily. "'The German troops are ready at Aix-la-Chapelle for an assault on Liège. "'Yes, sir, they're going to strike through Belgium. "'Know what that means? England in the war. "'Labor troubles, suffragette troubles, civil war in Ireland. "'These things will melt away as quickly as that snow we had last winter in Texas. "'They'll go in. "'It would be national suicide if they didn't.' "'His daughter stared at him. She was unaware that it was the bootblack at the Carlton he was now quoting. She began to think that he knew more about foreign affairs than she had given him credit for. "'Yes, sir,' he went on. "'We've got to travel. Fast. This won't be a healthy neighborhood for non-combatants when the ruction starts. I'm going if I have to buy a liner.' "'Nonsense,' said the girl. "'This is the chance of a lifetime. I won't be cheated out of it by a silly old dad.' "'Why, here we are, face to face with history.' "'American history is good enough for me,' he spread-eagled. "'What are you looking at?' "'Provincial to the death,' she said thoughtfully. "'You old dear, I love you so. "'Some of our statesmen over home are going to look pretty foolish now "'in the face of things they can't understand. "'I hope you're not going to be one of them.' "'Twaddle!' he cried. "'I'm going to the steamship offices today "'and argue as I have never argued for a vote.' His daughter saw that he was determined, and, wise from long experience, she did not try to dissuade him. London, that hot Monday, was a city on the alert, a city of hearts heavy with dread. The rumors in one special edition of the papers were denied in the next, and reaffirmed in the next. Men who could look into the future walked the streets with faces far from happy. Unrest ruled the town, and it found its echo in the heart of the girl from Texas as she thought of her young friend of the agony column, Endurance Vile, behind the frowning walls of Scotland Yard. That afternoon her father appeared, with the beaming mien of the victor, and announced that for a stupendous sum he had bought the tickets of a man who was to have sailed on the steamship Saronia three days hence. The boat train leaves at ten Thursday morning, he said. Take your last look at Europe and be ready. Three days. His daughter listened with sinking heart. Could she, in three days' time, learn the end of that strange mystery, know the final fate of the man who had first addressed her so unconventionally in a public print? Why, at the end of three days, he might still be in Scotland Yard, a prisoner. She could not leave if that were true. She simply could not. Almost she was on the point of telling her father the story of the whole affair, confident that she could soothe his anger and enlist his aid. She decided to wait until the next morning, and if no letter came then... But on Tuesday morning a letter did come, and the beginning of it brought pleasant news. The beginning, yes, but the end. This was the letter. Dear anxious lady, Is it too much for me to assume that you have been just that, knowing as you did that I was locked up for the murder of a captain in the Indian army, with the evidence all against me, and hope a very still small voice indeed. Well, dear lady, be anxious no longer. 
I have just lived through the most astounding day in all the astounding days that have been my portion since last Thursday. And now, in the dusk, I sit again in my rooms, a free man, and write to you in what peace and quiet I can command after the startling adventure through which I have recently passed. Suspicion no longer points to me. Constables no longer eye me. Scotland Yard is not even slightly interested in me. For the murderer of Captain Fraser Freer has been caught at last. Sunday night I spent ingloriously in a cell in Scotland Yard. I could not sleep. I had so much to think of, you, for example, and at intervals how I might escape from the folds of the net that had closed so tightly about me. My friend at the consulate, Watson, called on me late in the evening, and he was very kind, but there was a note lacking in his voice, and after he had gone the terrible certainty came into my mind. He believed that I was guilty after all. The night passed, and a goodly portion of today went by, as the poets say, with lagging feet. I thought of London, yellow in the sun. I thought of the Carlton. I suppose there are no more strawberries by this time. And my waiter, that stiff-backed Prussian, is home in Deutschland now, I presume, marching with his regiment. I thought of you. At three o'clock this afternoon they came for me, and I was led back to the room belonging to Inspector Bray. When I entered, however, the inspector was not there. Only Colonel Hughes, immaculate and self-possessed as usual, gazing out the window into the cheerless stone court. He turned when I entered. I suppose I must have had a most woebegone appearance, for a look of regret crossed his face. "'My dear fellow,' he cried, "'my most humble apologies. I intended to have you released last night. But, believe me, I have been frightfully busy.' I said nothing. What could I say? The fact that he had been busy struck me as an extremely silly excuse.' But the inference that my escape from the toils of the law was imminent set my heart to thumping. "'I fear that you can never forgive me for throwing you over as I did yesterday,' he went on. "'I can only say that it was absolutely necessary, as you shall shortly understand.' I thought a bit. After all, there was an unmistakable sincerity in his voice and manner. "'We are waiting for Inspector Bray,' continued the Colonel. "'I take it you wish to see this thing through?' "'To the end,' I answered. "'Naturally. "'The inspector was called away yesterday "'immediately after our interview with him. "'He had business on the continent, I understand. "'But fortunately I managed to reach him at Dover, "'and he has come back to London. "'I wanted him, you see, "'because I have found the murderer of Captain Fraser Freer. "'I thrilled to hear that, "'for from my point of view "'it was certainly a consummation devoutly to be wished. "'The colonel did not speak again.' In a few moments the door opened and Bray came in. His clothes looked as though he had slept in them. His little eyes were bloodshot, but in those eyes there was a fire I shall never forget. Hughes bowed. "'Good afternoon, Inspector,' he said. "'I'm really sorry I had to interrupt you as I did, but I most awfully wanted you to know that you owe me a Homburg hat.' He went closer to the detective. "'You see, I have won that wager.' I have found the man who murdered Captain Fraser Freer. Curiously enough, Bray said nothing. He sat down at his desk and idly glanced through the pile of mail that lay upon it. Finally, he looked up and said in a weary tone, You're very clever, I'm sure, Colonel Hughes. Oh, I wouldn't say that, replied Hughes. Luck was with me from the first. I am really very glad to have been of service in the matter, 
for I am convinced that if I had not taken part in the search, it would have gone hard with some innocent man. Bray's big pudgy hand still played idly with the mail on his desk. Hughes went on, Perhaps, as a clever detective, you will be interested in the series of events which enabled me to win that Homburg hat. You have heard, no doubt, that the man I have caught is Avon der Hertz, ten years ago the best secret service man in the employ of the Berlin government, but for the past few years mysteriously missing from our line of vision. We've been wondering about him at the war office. The colonel dropped into a chair facing Bray. You know von der Hertz, of course, he remarked casually. Of course, said Bray, still in that dead, tired voice. He is the head of that crowd in England, went on Hughes, rather a feather in my cap to get him. But I mustn't boast. Poor Fraser Fear would have got him if I hadn't. Only von der Hertz had the luck to get the captain first. Bray raised his eyes. You said you were going to tell me, he began. And so I am, said Hughes. Captain Fraser Freer got in rather a mess in India and failed of promotion. It was suspected that he was discontented, soured on the service, and the Countess Sophie de Graff was set to beguile him with her charms, to kill his loyalty and win him over to her crowd. It was thought she had succeeded. The Wilhelmstrasse thought so. We at the war office thought so, as long as he stayed in India. But when the captain and the woman came to London, we discovered that we had done him a great injustice. He let us know, when the first chance offered, that he was trying to redeem himself, to round up a dangerous band of spies by pretending to be one of them. He said that it was his mission in London to meet von der Hertz, the greatest of them all, and that once he had located this man we would hear from him again. In the weeks that followed I continued to keep a watch on the countess, and I kept track of the captain, too, in a general way, for I'm ashamed to say I was not quite sure of him. The colonel got up and walked to the window, then turned and continued, Captain Fraser Freer and von der Hertz were completely unknown to each other. The mails were barred as a means of communication, but Fraser Freer knew that in some way word from the master would reach him, and he had had a tip to watch the personal column in the Daily Mail. Now we have the explanation for those four odd messages. From that column, the man from Rangoon learned that he was to wear a white aster in his buttonhole, a scarab pin in his tie, a Hamburg hat on his head, and meet von der Hertz at ye old Grabrinus restaurant in Regent Street last Thursday night at ten o'clock. As we know, he made all arrangements to comply with those directions. He made other arrangements as well. Since it was out of the question for him to come to Scotland Yard, by skillful maneuvering he managed to interview an inspector of police at the Hotel Cecil. It was agreed that on Thursday night, Vanderhertz would be placed under arrest the moment he made himself known to the captain. Hughes paused. Bray still idled with his pile of letters, while the colonel regarded him gravely. Poor Fraser Freer, Hughes went on. Unfortunately for him, Vanderhertz knew almost as soon as did the inspector that a plan was afoot to trap him. There was but one course open to him. He located the captain's lodgings, went there at seven that night, and killed a loyal and brave Englishman where he stood. A tense silence filled the room. I sat on the edge of my chair, wondering just where all this unwinding of the tangle was leading us. I had little indeed to work on, went on Hughes. But I had this advantage, 
The spy thought the police, and the police alone, were seeking the murderer. He was at no pains to throw me off his track, because he did not suspect that I was on it. For weeks my men had been watching the countess. I had them continue to do so. I figured that sooner or later Vanderhertz would get in touch with her. I was right, and when at last I saw with my own eyes the man who must, beyond all question, be Vanderhertz, I was astounded. My dear inspector, I was overwhelmed. Yes, said Bray. I set to work then in earnest to connect him with that night in Adelphi Terrace. All the finger marks in the captain's study were for some reason destroyed, but I found others outside, in the dust on that seldom-used gate which leads from the garden. Without his knowing, I secured from the man I suspected the imprint of his right thumb. A comparison was startling. Next I went down into Fleet Street, and luckily managed to get hold of the typewritten copy sent to the mail, burying those four messages. I noticed that in these the letter A was out of alignment. I maneuvered to get a letter written on a typewriter belonging to my man. The A was out of alignment. Then Archibald Enright, a renegade and a waster well known to us as serving other countries, came to England. My man and he met at ye old Gabrinus, in Regent Street. And finally, on a visit to the lodgings of this man, who, I was now certain, was Vonderhertz, under the mattress of his bed I found this knife. And Colonel Hughes threw down upon the inspector's desk the knife from India that I had last seen in the study of Captain Fraser Freer. All these points of evidence were in my hands yesterday morning in this room, Hughes went on. Still, the answer they gave me was so unbelievable, so astounding, I was not satisfied. I wanted even stronger proof. That is why I directed suspicion to my American friend here. I was waiting. I knew that at last von der Hertz realized the danger he was in. I felt that if an opportunity were offered, he would attempt to escape from England, and then our proofs of his guilt would be unanswerable, despite his cleverness. True enough, in the afternoon he secured the release of the Countess, and together they started for the continent. I was lucky enough to get him at Dover, and glad to let the lady go on. And now for the first time the startling truth struck me full in the face as Hughes smiled down at his victim. Inspector Bray, he said, or Vonderhertz, as you choose, I arrest you on two counts— first as the head of the Wilhelmstrasse spy system in England, second as the murderer of Captain Fraser Freer. And, if you will allow me, I wish to compliment you on your efficiency. Bray did not reply for a moment. I sat numb in my chair. Finally the inspector looked up. He actually tried to smile. You win the hat, he said. But you must go to Hamburg for it. I will gladly pay all expenses. Thank you, answered Hughes. I hope to visit your country before long, but I shall not be occupied with hats. Again, I congratulate you. You were a bit careless, but your position justified that. As head of the department at Scotland Yard given over to the hunt for spies, precaution doubtless struck you as unnecessary. How unlucky for poor Fraser Freer that it was to you he went to arrange for your own arrest. I got that information from a clerk at the Cecil. You were quite right, from your point of view, to kill him, and, as I say, you could afford to be rather reckless. You had arranged that, when the news of his murder came to Scotland Yard, 
you yourself would be on hand to conduct the search for the guilty man. A happy situation, was it not? It seemed so at the time, admitted Bray, and at last I thought I detected a note of bitterness in his voice. I'm very sorry, really, said Hughes. Today, or tomorrow at the latest, England will enter the war. You know what that means, von der Hertz. The Tower of London and a firing squad. Deliberately he walked away from the inspector and stood facing the window. Von der Hertz was fingering idly that Indian knife which lay on his desk. With a quick, hunted look about the room, he raised his hand, and before I could leap forward to stop him, he had plunged the knife into his heart. Colonel Hughes turned round at my cry, but even at what met his eyes now the Englishman was imperturbable. "'Too bad,' he said. "'Really, too bad.' The man had courage, and beyond all doubt brains. But this is most considerate of him. He has saved me such a lot of trouble. The colonel effected my release at once, and he and I walked down Whitehall together in the bright sun that seemed so good to me after the bleak walls of the yard. Again he apologized for turning suspicion my way the previous day, but I assured him I held no grudge for that. "'One or two things I do not understand,' I said. That letter I brought from Interlaken. Simple enough, he replied. Enright, who, by the way, is now in the tower, wanted to communicate with Fraser Freer, who he supposed was a loyal member of the band. Letters sent by post seemed dangerous. With your kind assistance, he informed the captain of his whereabouts and the date of his imminent arrival in London. Fraser Freer, not wanting you entangled in his plans, eliminated you by denying the existence of this cousin. The truth, of course. Why, I ask, did the countess call on me to demand that I alter my testimony? Bray sent her. He had rifled Fraser Freer's desk, and he held that letter from Enright. He was most anxious to fix the guilt upon the young lieutenant's head. You and your testimony as to the hour of the crime stood in the way. He sought to intimidate you with threats. But... I know. You are wondering why the Countess confessed to me next day. I had the woman in rather a funk. In the meshes of my rapid-fire questioning she became hopelessly involved. This was because she was suddenly terrified. She realized I must have been watching her for weeks, and that perhaps von der Hertz was not so immune from suspicion as he supposed. At the proper moment I suggested that I might have to take her to Inspector Bray. This gave her an idea. She made her fake confession to reach his side. Once there, she warned him of his danger, and they fled together. We walked along a moment in silence. All about us the lurid special editions of the afternoon were flaunting their predictions of the horror to come. The face of the colonel was grave. How long had Vonderhertz held his position at the yard? I asked. For nearly five years, Hughes answered. It seems incredible, I murmured. So it does, he answered, but it is only the first of many incredible things that this war will reveal. Two months from now we shall all have forgotten it in the face of new revelations far more unbelievable. He sighed. If these men about us realized the terrible ordeal that lies ahead, misgoverned, unprepared, I shudder at the thought of the sacrifices we must make, many of them in vain. But I suppose that somehow, some day, we shall muddle through. 
He bade me good-bye in Trafalgar Square, saying he must at once seek out the father and brother of the late captain, and tell them the news, that their kinsman was really loyal to his country. It will come to them as a ray of light in the dark, my news, he said. And now, thank you, once again. We parted, and I came back here to my lodgings. The mystery is finally solved, though in such a way it is difficult to believe that it was anything but a nightmare at any time. But solved nonetheless, and I should be at peace, except for one great black fact that haunts me, will not let me rest. I must tell you, dear lady, and yet I fear it means the end of everything. If only I can make you understand. I have walked my floor deep in thought, in puzzlement, in indecision. Now I have made up my mind. There is no other way. I must tell you the truth. Despite the fact that Bray was Vonderhertz, despite the fact that he killed himself at the discovery, despite this and that and everything, Bray did not kill Captain Fraser Freer. On last Thursday evening, at a little after seven o'clock, I myself climbed the stairs, entered the captain's rooms, picked up that knife from his desk, and stabbed him just above the heart. What provocation I was under, what stern necessity moved me, all this you must wait until tomorrow to know. I shall spend another anxious day preparing my defense, hoping that through some miracle of mercy you may forgive me, understand that there was nothing else I could do. Do not judge, dear lady, until you know everything, until all my evidence is in your lovely hands. Yours in all humility. The first few paragraphs of this, the sixth and next to the last letter from the agony column man, had brought a smile of relief to the face of the girl who read. She was decidedly glad to learn that her friend no longer languished back of those gray walls on Victoria Embankment. With excitement that increased as she went along, she followed Colonel Hughes as, in the letter, he moved nearer and nearer his denouement until finally his finger pointed to Inspector Bray, sitting guilty in his chair. This was an eminently satisfactory solution, and it served the inspector right for locking up her friend. Then, with the suddenness of a bomb from a zeppelin, came, at the end, her strawberry man's confession of guilt. He was the murderer after all. He admitted it. She could scarcely believe her eyes. Yet there it was, in ink as violet as those eyes on the note-paper that had become so familiar to her during the thrilling week just past. She read it a second time, and yet a third. Her amazement gave way to anger, her cheeks flamed. Still, he had asked her not to judge until all his evidence was in. This was a reasonable request, surely, and she could not in fairness refuse to grant it. End of chapter 7